Hey everyone, you are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Ken, where our mission is to glorify God, helping each other become mature disciples of Christ as we worship, grow, serve, and reach. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Sunday School Podcast, where uh, we take Sunday Sermon and unpack it a little bit more and talk about some of the details regarding the study that took place uh, throughout the week and uh, the text that uh, maybe we just didn't have time to jump into in its fullness on Sunday morning. And so we encourage you, if you haven't listened to uh, Sunday's message, that you would go back to the episode before this and do that. Uh, just so you're familiar with what text we are talking about. And uh, if when we give references to that or talk about that, you'll know uh, what we're referring to. Um, if you did listen to Sunday's message uh, already, but uh, you aren't really, you don't really remember it super well, uh, go back, listen to it again. Good opportunity to just refresh yourself and to immerse yourself further into the text. Um, so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, and uh, this is a continuation of the series, Lord, Teach Us to Pray, that uh, we've been in. This is week number 5, and uh, we've got just a few more weeks left in this. But this week we began looking at uh, lessons uh, from the life and ministry of Jesus when it comes to prayer. And there's really three parts to this. Uh, but this one specifically uh, answering the question, how do I pray um, uh, from the life of Christ and looking at a very well-known passage of scripture uh, to talk about that, which is commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer. I like that it's in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's why, Prayer. Why do you like that? Because this is like, I, this is my wheelhouse. Okay. I wrote, I wrote my first paper on that, okay. um, on the Sermon on the Mount. And it's it's often the most quoted section of the New Testament. It's uh, very significant in that it's Jesus' teachings. So, Yes. And bring us up, uh, expand upon that a little more, because it may be helpful for people to have a little broader understanding, even just briefly, of the context of this in the Sermon on the Mount. What What's the significance of the Sermon on the Mount? Because um, this falls right in the and contextually it's really important we would understand that. And that's a piece of this. So if you're listening to this, um, it's really important that you understand the context surrounding a text. And uh, any pastor shepherd who's teaching that is going to do a good job is is going to be thinking uh, in their presentation of that text about what the context, how the context surrounding it influences the interpretation of that passage. If you just cherry pick passages out of scripture, you fall into a really dangerous habit of making scripture say what you want it to say rather than interpreting what scripture already says. And that would be the difference between eisegesis and exegesis. Eisegesis taking an idea you want to be true and inserting it into the text and finding passages that will defend your idea versus exegesis, which is exegeting a text, taking what it says, and determining what you should do from what it says, rather than the other way around. Yeah, so the Sermon on the Mount, um, 
comes very early on in Matthew. It starts in, in chapter 5. So it goes through 5, 6, and 7. So 6 is right in the middle, and that's where we find the Lord's Prayer. And what's interesting is how Matthew lays this out. So he comes through the beginning of his gospel with the background of Jesus, his, his um, genealogy and, and his birth and baptism and so on and so forth. And so this is kind of like Matthew setting up Jesus' ministry. And they go up on that's commonly called the Mount of Beatitudes because the beginning of <clears throat> of uh, Matthew chapter five is is the Beatitudes, um, but it's uh, Mount Olivet, which is yeah, right there, right next to the Sea of Galilee over over near Jerusalem, and so he's up there. It's a very big, you know, vast area where his voice will carry. He can you know teach to a big crowd, and so he goes through this whole discourse, this five block discourse of different things that are important to believers. And when you read through the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount, it kind of gives you a manuscript of how, as believers, we're called to act and how we're called to respond and, and be obedient to Christ. And so it's very significant in there that prayer is a very important aspect of that. And that's that's why he talks about what's commonly called to now is the Lord's Prayer. Excellent. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's a good that's a good summary. So, in the scope of this, I want you to picture too um, Jesus sitting down with his disciples, and literally says Jesus sat down on the mountain. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying. So these are I mean, imagine Jesus sitting there with his disciples, and it's commonly assumed that there was a crowd of people um, that gathered and were overhearing this too, um, but specifically. Um, in uh, really Matthew chapter 6 and the parallel passage to this is Luke chapter 11 which is where we see the Luke chapter 11 is really where this title for this sermon series came from where it says the disciples came to him and said Lord teach us to pray and this is a summation of Jesus response uh, to the disciples asking this question. And so that that's that's the root of the question we're trying to ask is, biblically, how do we pray? What does this look like? And Jesus gives us such a profound example here. Um, and I'm, I'm, we'll, we'll kind of jump back and forth a little bit between using some of the sermon curriculum questions. And if you don't know what that is, uh, if you go to our video description, whether that be on social media or YouTube, uh, you'll find uh, sermon notes. And this is a curriculum we write each week that is meant to go in parallel with the message for that week. Uh, with the the desire that you would take that and actually dive into scripture yourself. So if you don't have a regular devotional you use, you can use this. Uh, if you meet with a small group of people or have been considering doing a Bible study at home, use this resource. It's free. Uh, we we want nothing for this. We just want to equip you to be able to to study scripture more. Um, so use that. Um, but the other thing, we'll just talk some more about uh, just other texts and. Uh, the emphasis here in Matthew chapter 6. One of the things I want to note in this is uh, uh, a a great fault that uh, has happened when it comes to these really well-known passages of Scripture. There's a lot of people who can quote these but actually don't know what they're really saying. And part of that is due to uh, more liturgical styles of worship. I I love liturgy. I, I think it's great. I have nothing against liturgy. Um, but I do have something against um, just kind of going through the motions because it's what we're supposed to do. 
that brings about no transformation. It brings about no a difference when it comes to how we interpret scripture or how it has implication in our lives. And uh, when we get into those habits, we, I believe we're most prone to falling into just legalism, which is we do this because it's the rules, because it's what you're supposed to do, and it's in this form, in this way, and that's the end of the story. Um, and I think that has the potential to be dangerous. In, this, in the same way that it's dangerous to just do your own thing apart from Scripture, we can, it can be just as dangerous to just kind of robotically quote or do something without any meaning behind it. Yeah, and just to give some kind of perspective outside of Scripture, it's like using the word love. You know, if you if you tell your spouse you love her or him every time you leave the house, but you're just saying it because that's what you're supposed to do when you walk out the door, do you, do you really have that meaning behind love? Right. And that's that's where a lot of this comes from. I mean, when you're praying, you know, a prayer such as this, if it's just mindless repetition, it doesn't mean anything. And you miss the the huge emphasis and implications that are in the text. Yeah. Um, and something else I wanted to touch on, too, since we were talking about the Sermon on the Mount, um, that makes this unique, is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the very last two verses, is 7, 28, and 29, it says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So that just sets it up even more that there was some weight behind the sermon discourse. Yeah. No, that's a fantastic illustration. Um, and even a challenge just in that, to stop and think, uh, do the things that I do in my spiritual life, do I do them to check a box, or do I do them because I want to know God more? And there's a difference. There's a difference in motivation. And if you're just doing something to check a box, you, you're missing the depth of relationship that you could be experiencing if you're doing it because you long to know who God is based in who he has revealed himself to be. So, great, great starting just challenge off the cuff. Um, but one of the first questions, just even in the sermon curriculum itself, is what difference can it make to pray um, my father instead of our father? This referring to the first line of uh, the Lord's Prayer. It says, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Um, and this is a this is a powerful distinction. Uh, a lot of people uh, unintentionally make this a, a individual thing. So we might say "Our Father who's in heaven," but we really mean "My Father," you know, "My God." I'm coming to you as my God, the one to serve me. And we want to unpack why that uh, why there's a difference there, and why that is crucial to even our interpretation and application of a text like the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. What do you think? What do you, why do you think there's a... What, what difference do you think that it makes to pray my instead of our? In the... I would say in the, in the scope of application and how it affects the church. Well, I think you're... If you're praying it as my instead of our, you're putting your needs above the collective needs of the entire church. Yes. And that's... Not what we're called to do. And we talked about that a little bit last week, that it's it's not a prayer about me, it's a prayer about us, or doing things for us, the collective church. Yeah, and there's, it's really unifying. When you see, when, when I'm praying our, if I, if I see that visibly, and I, and I apply that, our Father, then when I'm praying that, I know, wow, I'm a part of a family of people 
that are called to the same mission and the same purpose. Whereas if it's my, I'm limiting this scope of view to just my desires, my worldview, my kingdom, my... It's very individualistic, whereas nothing God does is individualistic. Uh, And that's why... Uh, we believe the church is defined by all of those who confess faith in Christ alone, uh, by faith alone in Christ alone, uh, that corporately we are the church. The church is, uh, you'll probably hear us say this in the future a lot, the church is not the building you go to. Get that out of your head, okay? Just start there. Um, you, If you profess faith in Jesus, you are the church, which means you represent the family of God everywhere you go, in every setting God has placed you, um, you are an ambassador. That's what scripture would say. You represent another kingdom in this kingdom that you dwell. You, you are not a, you, you, your citizenship is in heaven. <laughs> another statement of scripture. Um, and, and we do not often live like that because, again, the influence of, I'll say spiritual narcissism is we like to pray my father instead of our father. So, yeah, we see Jesus talking about that too, where, you know, there's a huge emphasis when he's uh, crucified on our bodies being the church, and it's not b- about being a building, where he talks about, you know, in three days I'll raise this temple. People don't realize that he was specifically talking about his own body because that's where the spirit dwells in right. us as believers. So when he when we talk, we are the church, we very much literally mean we, our bodies, are the church. Yes, correct. Yeah. And when you think about it that way, it becomes way more challenging because it means you can't just come to quote unquote church mm-hmm. because you are the church. Yep. So if you're going to say, well, I'm going to put my church hat on, well, that's all the time. Yeah. That means you, you represent the church in your own homes. So as spouses or parents or just even in friendship relationships for those of you who are single for those who are in workforces you 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 are church all the time yeah, absolutely if you if you profess faith in Jesus so consider that and consider how that changes the dynamic about uh, when Jesus commands even in John 13 to in the same way I've served you you're to serve one another what does that look like it means I'm part of a family. I'm part of a family that extends way beyond um, the the blood relation in my own home, and you may you may actually be in a situation where uh, the, your church family is more family to you than blood family, and that's that's the the cool thing about that is the only eternal relationships are the brother and sister in Christ relationships. Uh, scripture says there's not marriage in heaven. Okay. <laughs> Sorry to burst your bubble if that's if you thought that was a thing. Um, Jesus actually teaches that when he's challenged by a couple of religious leaders who say, well, say this woman gets remarried three different times because her husbands die. Who will she marry in heaven? And Jesus goes, you missed the point. There, there's not marriage in heaven. Um, there is only this uh, intimate brother and sister in Christ relationship that exists in eternity. So think about that the next time you're challenged with whether you should strive to serve your church family or not. Uh, that is your eternal relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's why he put such an emphasis on, on self-sacrifice where he said there is no greater love than one that lays down their life for a friend because you're doing that for the church. Right. Yeah. So 
Keep anyway, that in mind. Anyway, I digress. Sorry. Hey, no, that's it's good. That's it's a good tangent, and and that all so all of that encompasses around the term hour mm-hmm. when we think corporately, and it's not just there in the beginning, but even when it gets down to the later portions in verse eleven, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. The whole thrust of the Lord's prayer is corporate. There's not one part of this that's meant to be individualized in and of itself. So there should be great emphasis placed on the corporate application of Jesus' instruction in how we're to pray. And even more specifically, where this becomes uh, an issue, and uh, we're going to talk about this other piece next week more, but I'll mention it. Just before this, when Jesus is instructing them how not to pray, he tells them don't don't pray like the Pharisees where you're standing on the street corners and making it known to everyone that you're praying. So I know some people who are reluctant to engage in corporate prayer at all because they go, well, God said not to do that. Well, not exactly. God said not to make it about you and not to make it about you glorifying yourself. Mm-hmm. But he did say, he did em- emphasize in how you should pray that it's meant to be corporate. So if we really want to fulfill what Jesus has called us to in how we're to pray, um, the corporate application and nature of prayer has to become a part of our prayer lives. Yeah, and if you look at, at, the, at the Lord's Prayer and think in Scripture just you know out of the words and life of Jesus, this is the only corporate prayer we have from him. You know, we have other other prayers in the Psalms and stuff like that that we can we can absolutely pray together corporately, but when we're talking just a specific model from the gospels, this is it. So imagine, you know, you're at a Sunday service and you want to pray corporately. What are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to type out a prayer, have it up, you know, on a projector screen or say repeat after me or something like that? This is something that Pretty much every believer knows they learn from a young age, and it, it comes very quickly. It's not hard to learn, and we're able to pray corporately with each other from the words of Christ himself. There's something powerful behind that. Yeah. So second question on here, evaluating how we pray. What is usually the focus of our prayers? Me. <laughs> That's me yeah, every I, time. I think more specifically, my needs. Mm-hmm. Um. And we even talked about that in past discussions where uh, the emphasis often becomes God is a genie that we call on when we're in a time of need. And really when we're in a situation where we feel we uh, are most out of control. Um, and, and the second piece of this is why do, why do we think it is important that we fix our eyes vertically before we ask regarding the horizontal um, and and I think this ultimately comes back to a place of uh, my fleshly tendency is to be concerned only about myself. And um, I, I said this on Sunday, but I'll say it again. One of the, you, the, the greatest enemy that you face in your day-to-day life is your own flesh. It, it just is. You're, no one else is to blame for any sinful response or you falling into temptation 
Um, no one else. I, you can make every excuse in the world to try and blame someone, and that's what's happened from the beginning of time. From the very first sin, that's exactly what we did. We, it wasn't me. It was, it was them. It was this person. No, no there was no person... I, going back to Genesis, no one shoved the fruit in your mouth. You chose to eat of this tree. That, that, that was your choice. In the same way today, I don't care how irate uh, your coworkers are, how annoying they are, you control your response. Um, it doesn't matter uh, what your calendar schedule looks like. You control how you use your time. If you are in a family with young children, I don't care how irate your children have been or how obnoxious they have been today. You control your response, and you are the only one who's going to account for how you chose to live in your flesh, whether good or evil. I, there, there is no one else who is responsible. And so in the scope of this... Um, Understanding that's the greatest battle we fight and the greatest enemy we face. As much as you'd like to think our greatest enemy is Satan, <laughs> the deceiver, it's not because Satan has no authority where Christ dwells. And that's exactly what 1 Corinthians 10.13 reminds us. No temptation is overtaking that's not common to man. God doesn't allow. Remember that. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to bear. Okay? Every temptation you face, you, God already has promised that it's not going to be more than you're able to refuse or deny. We just don't want to because we like our sin. And the same is true in our prayer life. We would like what we want. And this impacts the scope and sequence of our prayers and often results in people who become prayerless because they go, well, prayer doesn't work. What they really mean is, I didn't get what I wanted. <laughs> It's like the kid who figures out that Santa isn't real <laughs> because, well, I ask him for this, but I never get what I want. <laughs> and we treat prayer the same way. I come to God with my list of wants, and I expect him to fulfill those. And then when it doesn't happen, I start to question whether prayer really works. And as a result, I then shift to a check-the-box mentality where I prayed because I know it's what I'm supposed to do, but I don't really believe what I'm praying. Yeah, how dare you, creator of the cosmos, not give me what I want. <laughs> you know, and that's the that's what kills me. You know, I see it over and over again in, in the Gospels. We see this tr everywhere. All these people come to Jesus, not for, help me figure out how I grow my relationship with God, not for... What do I got to do? It's, can you fix this? Can you heal this, Jesus? Can you make this go away, Jesus? If that's not a understanding of what we are as humans and the, how selfish we are and how everything is just narcissistically about us, I don't know what will explain it to you because we see that throughout the Gospels. And it's it's not that Jesus didn't want to heal people because he did, He but that's not what he came here for. And people are still trying to get stuff out of him today. Lord, just please, if you could just make this go away, stop this pain and suffering. And then when he says no, we're like, well, I'm done with him. Instead of digging into him more, going, I know that through you, I don't have any worries coming after this life. That everything's going to be perfect. That's what he's wanting from us. It's pretty simple. Mm. That's the problem he solves. He solves all those problems. It just takes a while to get there. Mm. Yeah, so I, I wanted to read this quote out of this book on uh, prayer that 
uh, Nine Marks put out. And Nine Marks is an organization that seeks to equip churches for the glory of God and uh, puts out some phenomenal resources. And this book on prayer is uh, really a gift to the church that focuses on biblical prayer and what does this look like. Um, But in this, in uh, uh, this uh, discussion on prayer, uh, one of the quotes says, uh, um, We won't consistently pray if we're not sure of God's ability. So much of our failure to pray comes from subtly believing that within God exists the possibility of failure. Because of this, we never ask God to do the impossible. Instead, we pursue only things we can accomplish on our own. And then it follows up with this. It says, if we only imagine what God can do and then judge his goodness by how often he does the impossible for us, we'll never find true peace. His ability should cause our hearts to soar and ask for the impossible, but his sovereignty and wisdom should keep us grounded. They remind us that although God can do the impossible, he doesn't have to, and we can trust him regardless. Peace is found here and only here. And one of the things I really like about that is it's this emphasis on do we re- when we come to God in prayer, do we really believe he's able to do far more than we could ever think or imagine? We, we can say that, but uh, I think the author of this book rightly identifies that our tendency is to only pray as much as we believe is possible because we're limiting it to our own finite perspective and point of view, as opposed to understanding and knowing who God is sovereignly and then praying out of that with a confidence that God can do anything and I have a confidence in his ability, but I also have a peace in his sovereignty that whatever he chooses to do is exactly according to his plan. And so this falls into really uh, verses 9 and 10 uh, where of the Lord's Prayer where it's, Lord, I want your name to be hallowed. I want you to be honored. I want your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what it means in that question where um, why, why it's important to fix our eyes on the vertical before we focus on the horizontal. It's because if we fix our eyes on the horizontal and seek to take that to the vertical, we're, we're going to become really tired and burnt out because there's much of what we would like to see in the horizontal that has absolutely no bearing upon who God is in the vertical. And so, in the same way that it's dangerous for us to take our own ideas and come to Scripture to try to back them up, it's equally as dangerous for us to take our own ideas about what is best and take those to God in prayer rather than fixing our eyes on who God is, on what His will is, on what He has promised, and then praying that that would be here that those things would be fleshed out and we would walk in them as the church faithfully here. So, uh, really challenging for us to stop and consider that we've got to fix our eyes on the vertical, who God is, where He is, what He has desired, what He has made clear, before we will know how to pray like we should in the horizontal. Yeah, and we see a a huge um, correlation there in Proverbs uh, 38 and 9. And 30 verse 8 is, 
is referenced in, if you have a reference Bible, it's referenced in the Lord's Prayer. But I, I like the addition of, of verse 9 because it kind of gives a little bit of explanation. But if you think about how we pray and what we look after or what we look for um, when we're praying to God, this will really make sense. And verse 8 says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needed for me. And then verse 9 really drives it home. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Mm. Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So right there it explains why God doesn't give us what we want. Because once he does, we're going to turn around and immediately be like, that was all us. We, God didn't mm-hmm. do that for us. So it doesn't matter if he gives it to us. That's why the emphasis, like Matt was just saying, needs to be on the vertical, on what God wants, not what we want. Yeah. Because we're given, and we see that right in, uh, before the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says that for the Father knows what you need. We're given what we need. We have air in our lungs. We have food. We like we we, we sur- we're surviving this life. We have everything we need. We have salvation. We have all these things. So we're given what we need. We're just not always given what we want. Yeah, and this that even parallels with Psalm thirty-seven four, which says, "Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart." And the emphasis there is simply on the fact that um, if you delight yourself in what the Lord delights in, the desires of your heart will change. And and it doesn't mean it's it's very anti-prosperity gospel, um, where that the prosperity gospel would say if you delight yourself in the Lord, He'll give you whatever you want. Um, if you uh, become more spiritual, or if you pray harder, if you do more, then He will. Uh, give you the things of this world in abundance. That is absolutely opposed to the very gospel. Jesus told his disciples to expect to suffer, to expect persecution. In fact, he, in the, earlier in the Beatitudes, it says, Blessed are you when others uh, revile you and persecute and utter all kinds of evil against you for my name's sake. I mean, it's quite opposite of what the prosperity gospel would tell you. But here's the amazing truth. The more you delight yourself in the vertical, the things that God loves, the things that are according to his will, the things according to his promises, you will see the desires of your heart change. You you will see them transformed. Not that you won't struggle with those same fleshly desires, because Galatians says there's a war that is waged in in our souls between our flesh and the Spirit of God. But what you will see is the more you choose to invest in the spiritual, the more you will desire the things that are of God far above the things that are of the earth. Mm-hmm. And that was something we touched on a week or two ago with the process of sanctification, where mm-hmm. the closer and closer you grow towards Christ, the more and more you disgust in sin, you just you hate it. You start hating sin, and you only become concerned with the things of of heaven that are not of this world and uh, i'm going to be honest here i'm in the same boat as everybody else i am not at that end of the spectrum Mm. not anywhere close and it's it's weird when you hear people that you know um that are in ministry positions that say that it's like oh no you're you're not perfect no i'm still a fallible human just like you i'm not anything special it's not like i was zapped with magical powers and now i'm all of a sudden (laughs) sanctified that's not how it works i struggle just as much as everybody else and sometimes more because of that calling that you have in ministry 
and you you see things um, from a different perspective because you're spending so much time in Scripture and in God's Word that things start to become apparent to you that weren't before. And that's why it's there's always such an emphasis on putting so much time into God's Word because these things become apparent to you. And then by reading Scripture, you know how to deal with them. You root into God more. And so that's where you get that that almost like look of perfection when you look at a minister um, is because you think, oh, they've got it together. No, it's just, it's not that they have it together by any means. It's that they see things in a different light because of how deeply rooted they are in God's word. So the third question in here shifts to uh, kind of the next few verses in this, which shift to daily needs. Um, so that third question, Western culture, how can we begin to discipline ourselves to pray for our daily need instead of our monthly or yearly want. And what has to change in our thinking for this to happen? There's a lot there. Um, <laughs> yes, number there one, I want to I preface this by saying that if you set a calendar reminder for you to pray every day, if your intention is because you want to grow closer to God, you're not checking a box. So don't mm-hmm. think That's of good. it like that. Because yeah. I've done that in the past where yeah. I... I get so busy with school or, or coming up and recording podcasts or something that I forget to get stuff done, and so I make a task list, mm-hmm. but I'm not doing it to check a box. I'm doing it because I, I know I need that communication with the Lord. Yep. So let's start with that. You know, if, if you're looking for some way to get that daily need, make yourself a box to check, but don't do it just to check the Correct. box. Yes, that's a, that's a great clarification because your flesh often needs those type of reminders. Um, and we live in a day and age where you have no excuse not to be reminded either. Like mm-hmm. it's really easy. Uh, if you have the the Bible app, um, that app you can set reminders through it. You can start Bible reading plans. You can remind yourself at a certain time of day to read the Bible and even pray. Um, utilize some of those tools. Um, but it's interesting when we think about Western culture. Uh, and we look at the context of our prayers and the substance of our prayers, uh, they're often related to things that seem really far-fetched. And there's a good chance that most of you listening to this did not wake up today wondering whether or not you were going to eat. And praise God for that. That's, that's not a bad thing, but it can become a bad thing. And and the reason I say that is because we have become a, we've grown accustomed to not depending on the Lord for those things that we truly need food and clothing shelter we we have become accustomed to those things just being expectations that we think we deserve and uh, I am all for uh efforts to make sure that we seek to to make sure people are fed. I, I'm all for making sure, uh, like working together, bonding together to make sure people have shelter and clothing. And I, uh, that, I, this is important. But here's the deal. As a follower of Jesus, I have to get to a mental place where I recognize I don't deserve any of these things. And I need to have a dependence on the Lord to provide for my greatest needs. And if I am just depending on myself, then when I hit a point of crisis, I am going to be in chaos. If you really want to have lasting peace and comfort in the midst of every life circumstance, you strive to discipline yourself 
to walk in dependence upon the Lord for everything. And that includes the daily needs that you have today. And so this is challenging. And honestly, I'm still working on what does this look like practically every day in how what what happens when I wake up in the morning? What are what are the first prayers that I say in the morning, and how do those influence how I see each part of my day? Um, if I get up and I'm just again horizontal focus on my to do list, on dealing with my kids, on uh, you know the difficult situations at work or whatever it may be, uh, then I should expect that my whole day is going to be focused on those things. As opposed to fixing my eyes vertically and going, God, I know that the very ability for me to open my eyes today and to get out of bed is a gift from you. And I'm dependent on you. I'm dependent on the Lord to maintain the beating of my heart that keeps me alive. Um, I can't control that as much as I would like to think I can. Um, So there's a lot that can shift in our thinking in order that uh, we focus on our daily need rather than the future wants of our life. Um, Jesus encouraged this at the end of Matthew chapter 6, where he says, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow is going to worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. How do I apply that? Well, I recognize that all I'm promised is this moment. All I am guaranteed, I can walk out of this this hour, and something happened, and I be with the Lord. I have no control over that. Now, unfortunately, we don't think that way. And that's what leads to the most regret, is we think that we have all this time, and the reality is you you aren't in control of that. You don't have no idea what's going to happen. That You are dependent on the Lord for the very breath in your lungs. And so, seeking to understand that, and not live as if you have all this time, but simply being faithful with today is a is a great challenge uh, for how to walk and live as a follower of Christ. Yeah, to follow that up, um, I, that's perfectly explained in, in James, um, James chapter 4, mm. uh, 13 through 17. Um, where he's talking about boasting about tomorrow. And the gist of it, um, just for sake of time, I won't read that section. You can look that up. Again, that was James four thirteen through seven. Read your Bible. Yes, read your Bible. Um, but what he's talking about is we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. And saying that you're going to go and do something tomorrow, my son and I had this conversation the other night, saying that you're going to do something tomorrow is really futile because you don't know if tomorrow's coming. Mm-hmm. I mean, and we, we think about that as, you know, just... Um, you know, with our own lives, like anything could happen, you know, we might die, whatever, you know, you can walk out the door and get hit by a bus. You hear that, you've heard that probably before, but it's more leaning towards Jesus could return is what that real implication yes. is. He could return right now. Gotcha. Didn't I with that pause? But I mean, he very much, that's, that's, the, that's the urgency that, that he's talking about. He could very much return just like that. And so that's why you do things today that's why you there's you know, shouldn't procrastinate and that's why putting off that relationship with god is probably not a smart choice mm. and this doesn't mean that you become irresponsible and i always like to preface that because there's always that person who hears that and goes oh well, i'm gonna live it up today because i don't have tomorrow no 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 you're 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 not to be stupid you are to be wise and prudent 
and you are to be uh, fiscally responsible. You're to be someone who thinks about uh, what needs to be in place for the future. But if that becomes the object of your focus, then you are going to be a very discouraged person in eternity because you will have wasted your time. And so there is a balance between identifying and saying, what do I need to do to be responsible today? As opposed to um, someone just saying, well, I'm just going to blow everything today because it might be my last day. That's not what living as if you, you don't have time, more time is, is about. If you really want to get down to it, it means you need to think about the opportunities to show the love of Christ today that are right in front of you and take advantage of those because you don't know if you're going to have those opportunities again. Um, we don't know if the people who cross our paths today are going to have those opportunities to intersect with the gospel again. You, as the church, may be one of the only people someone intersects today that holds the very hope of eternity. Think about that for a minute. Um, what is our greatest need? It, it goes way beyond just clothes or f- f- um, food. Uh, it's, it's salvation is our greatest need in the midst of that. And... Um, That brings us to really the final question on this, which is why is a focus on forgiveness so important in our prayer life? And this is really verse 12 and 13. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And why is this uh, such an important aspect of uh, our prayer life? It's the gospel. And you are very prone to lose sight of the very hope that you've been given in Christ. The very dependence you have on the forgiveness of God for you for for you even being alive because the wages of sin is death according to scripture you deserve to die for your sin and that's not just the person who's committed the most heinous felony that is the person who's told the smallest of lies that's the person who has deceived someone for their own gain it's the person who has uh, spoken out in anger and sinned as a result of that um, goodness sakes if we start listing those things we realize every day i am in desperate need of god's forgiveness the scary part of this is if you really read verse 12 it's asking god to forgive us in the same way that we forgive others which is a whole nother conversation mm-hmm. and a big challenge But uh, understand this point, there are consequences, spiritual consequences, for choosing to live in unforgiveness towards other people. Um, Forgiveness does not equal trust. Those are two different things. Okay, forgive and forget is not a biblical concept. So don't, don't believe lies that would say that, uh, you have to live in a way that is not true. Um, but understand that unforgiveness is a sin. And living in that, choosing to live in that, is putting yourself in a prison of your own making. It does not hurt the other person. It only damages you, and it damages your relationship with the Lord. Um, and so reminding ourselves daily of our desperate need for forgiveness ourselves shifts our focus from the horizontal to the vertical and reminds us of our own need for God's inter- intervention in the life of the church. Yeah, absolutely. How can you expect forgiveness if you don't turn around and reciprocate it? I mean, you you really can't. I mean, when you really sit there and chew on the fat of that, you, it doesn't make logical sense to go, I've been forgiven by Jesus, but I'm not going to forgive anybody else. Yeah, You're missing the point there. Yeah, and even worse, 
uh, to think about those people who, whether intentionally or unintentionally, you're saying, I really don't care if they end up in hell. Mm. That is even more, in my mind, even more heinous, that you would condemn someone to eternal damnation simply because of something they've done to you. Um, that you hold the hope of eternity in your hands and you would choose just not to share that because of how someone's treated you. Um, I, 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 I have no words for that. Um, that that's super discouraging to me. Um, and yet, in the scope of that, I, I understand that challenge. And I've walked through circumstances where I have had those thoughts and feelings and thankfully, praise the Lord, have been rebuked by the Spirit of God and uh, I'm able to identify my humanity and my flesh and the sinfulness that still dwells within me um, and, and to correct that. Um, but we cannot give license to the flesh to rule that piece of our life. It's not okay. I, regardless of the situation, it's not okay. And again, it does way more damage to you and your relationship with the Lord than it does anything to that other person who's wronged you. Yeah, and we see the perfect example with Jesus on the cross. Yes. They just mercilessly beat him. He's mm-hmm. on the verge of death. And what does he say? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Yes. And if anybody has the right to send anyone to hell and condemn them because of how they are, it was that man there. Yes. And he still forgive them, Father. He's asking, pleading on their behalf, please forgive them. They don't know what they do. Yes. That's powerful. It is. And really, this brings us to the peak of just the gospel. And I want to make sure we share that each time for those of you listening, because you need, regardless of where you're at in your spiritual journey, you need to be reminded of this truth and this hope every single day. Whether you're a person who's claimed the name of Jesus for 50 years of your life, or you aren't really sure what you believe, you need to know that the reason forgiveness has to be a focus of our prayer life is because apart from the forgiveness that is given us through Christ, uh, we are utterly hopeless. We have no hope of eternity. And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then Jesus gave his own life in obedience to the Father so that all those who believe in the name of Jesus to be saved will indeed be saved and can have a confidence, a hope, and a peace that goes beyond anything this world can ever offer you and extends into eternity in the presence of God. And through that, it opens up a door of communication through the blood of Jesus where we have direct access to the Father in prayer. The very gift of prayer is open to us through the salvation that can only be found in Christ. And so, if you are in a place today where you're just wondering, how does that come to be? I just want to challenge you. Today, you either choose to surrender your life to Christ or you don't. There's no middle ground. Um, we either are surrendered to Christ or we're surrendered to our flesh. And uh, we will choose to walk in that today, one way or another. And our prayer would be that you would come to a place of surrendering to Christ and experience the hope and joy and peace that can only come from Him. And if you have questions about that, please reach out to us. We would love nothing more than to talk about that, to share further the hope of Christ, and uh, to give you resources that can help you grow in that and even bring you into community. Um, which is one of the most beneficial and biblical ways that we walk on this journey of life together. Yeah, absolutely. And don't, don't be shy. If you're wrestling with questions I mean, or just not sure where you're at, send an email to the church, office of 
call the church, yes. stop at the end of Sunday service, yep. grab Matt, Drew, uh, Brandon, one of the elders, or any other really church member. Yep. You know, there's plenty of people in there to help you in your walk. Uh, because we, one of the things that I want to leave everybody with that is what we often say is the scariest words in all of the Bible, Matthew six or Matthew seven twenty one through twenty three. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name and then i will declare to them i never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness Mm. and what he's saying there is it's about him you have to do your life for christ like that's that's what obedience to him is everything that we do should be done in for the glory of god Mm -hmm. and we find that in scripture as well that's not a direct quote but Basically, that's the gist of it, and that's in there. So really sit down today and be in prayer and think about what you're doing, where you're going, and how you're going to get there. So I want to close this in prayer and know that uh, uh, we look forward to doing this each week. And if there's things we can touch on or focus on or questions we can answer, reach out, let us know. We'd love to know that and be able to walk with you better. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word and for the truth that equips us in our walk with you. And I pray for each person listening that you would give them a desire to grow and a hope that's rooted in that which is eternal, not those things that are temporary. I pray for the burdens that uh, encapsulate every person who's listening to this. Lord, we know the weight of this world is heavy, and yet uh, we know that uh, Christ has overcome the world and uh, that we can have faith in the midst of chaos simply because our hope is not here. So, Lord, I pray for that. I pray for transformation. You'd continue to build your church according to your purposes for your glory. We pray this through the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen.